It's in John chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus said, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Has to happen. Ha this has to happen, he says. This is in the conversation with Nicodemus. You know it. Nicodemus came and asked about the life and ministry of Jesus. And, and, and Jesus told him, you have to be born again. And, and Nicodemus said, how can I be? Do I enter my mother's womb a second time? And, and, and you recall from last week that he said, no, you, you, just as you've been born of the flesh, so you must be born of the spirit. You must be born again if you're ever to see the kingdom of God. The second must is in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. It says this. And as Moses was lifted, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus pulled out this illustration for Nicodemus from the Old Testament. He said, this has to happen. God has decided this. This is the case. This is a necessity. This is what is to happen. It's imperative. It's of vital importance. I, Jesus is basically insisting this is how it's going to be. This must happen. Now we come to the end of this chapter. We're going to just touch down on the last 12 verses or so this morning, 14 verses. And John the Baptist says this. It's in John 3 verse 30. He must increase, increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. John as we're going to see in the context of this whole passage, says, this has to happen. This has to happen. And I just think as we go through this, I want to lay the groundwork as we get started here because what was true for John is also true for you and I. This has to happen for us. We have to decrease and Jesus has to increase. There must be an, an increase of our decrease. And so let's check out... Uh, what had led John to that decision? A decision that he felt was not optional. Was not optional in his life. This had to happen. And so we pick up in John's gospel. We're going to pick it up in verse 22. And we're following the account of Jesus' very personal meeting with Nicodemus. Remember, we got insight into this one-on-one -on -one meeting with Nicodemus. And, and after this very personal conversation, we zoom out a little bit. John gives us a little bit more context of what's going on in the background because what we're going to look at in the next number of weeks are lots of one-on-one -on -one personal conversations that Jesus had with people. So John zooms out now after this conversation with Nicodemus, and we read in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was, and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at, I don't know how to say it, Anon and Salem, near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. It's interesting. So John the Baptist is baptizing, and now Jesus is baptizing. The other gospels, or it's later in this gospel, somewhere it tells us that it actually wasn't him that was doing it, but he was having his disciples do it. And it's interesting what John tells us that, you know, why, did, why this particular place is just a funny little detail in the scripture uh, why did they go there to baptize? Because it says the water was plentiful there. John went where water is. That's kind of practical if you're going to be a Baptist, right? Like if you're going to be a baptizer, you have to go where water is. And if you're going to be teaching about repentance and calling people to repentance and calling them to water baptism, then you have to be where there's a source of water. You go where there's water. I, I've been reading... Uh, a historical book. I just kind of been interested in some stuff. And so I've been reading uh, the Gulag Archipelago, the abridged version. And I was reading this week, it was just, they were, the writer was talking about the fact that, that these, these peasants were being taken and walked out into the Russian taiga and they were led to spots where there was no water and then told, build a settlement, which was essentially a prison camp. And it was like, authors just pointing out the stupidity it's like, why would you build a prison camp or any settlement where there's no water? Where you have to hike 10 or 12 or 15 kilometers to get water. You don't go where there's no water. And so very practical, if you're going to practice baptism, you go where there's water. And, and I just think that the, God's will is like that. You know, God's will is really practical, church. It's really practical. 
You know, sometimes we make his, his will and making decisions. When we talk about decisions, we go, well, you know, how, how do we weigh what God is doing? How do we decide where, where he's leading and how he's, he's directing? And often God's direction is just simply very practical. Moses, look at what's in your hand. Take what's in your hand and lay it down in front of me. John, you're going to be a baptizer? Go where there's water. I think about, I was making me think about Lisa and, and my, our decision when we first came to the coast. You know, when we came back here, we'd just come up visiting on a May long weekend to, to visit my mom. And um, we'd gone out to Cooper's Green and the boys were little. You know, Isabella was wasn't around yet and Jonah was three I think Eli was about 18 months and we went to Cooper's Green and we're watching our kids play on the beach and we looked at each other and we said what are we doing we live in Surrey I hate Surrey I like hate it I hate where I live we were living in Newton and and I'm like I'm not a city boy I like I just I just hate it I'm like why don't we move here I love this Lisa's like yeah and so we just began to pray and lay it out before the Lord. And the funny thing was, we went to church the next day. We were visiting Calvary Chapel in Davis Bay. And so I, I told Pastor Ed Hickey, who was there, lots of you guys know Ed, I said, yeah, you know, we're, we're thinking about moving to the Sunshine Coast in a year. And he said to me, in a year, why don't you come in six months? And I thought, that's weird. That was weird. It kind of just hit my heart. And then we, we went home, and we were visiting with Lisa's sister and her husband, who love the Lord and are believers that we really respect. And we said, yeah, we're thinking about moving to the Sunshine Coast in a year. And they said, a year? Why don't you go in six months? We thought, whoa, maybe God's speaking here. And we put our place up for sale. And before we knew, I think we were here six months to the day on the Sunshine Coast. And it's interesting that this desire was in our heart. But God was in the leading of the desire that he had placed in our hearts. He was there. You know, it's interesting. Augustine, the the, the old theologian, said this. He said, love God with all your heart and then do whatever you please. And you know, it's an interesting thing. I think it's actually a great principle. Because if we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength and with all of our mind, we can trust that he begins to place his desires in our hearts, right? And sure, you've been through that where God just changes a desire. He puts his desires in your heart. And if you truly love him, your desires will line up with his will. Because of our love for God, he, he begins to place those desires in our heart. And so I, I just want to tell you, you know, if you're questioning or wondering about the will of God, I would just say be seeking Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then follow desires that he, he sets in you. In your heart, the, the interests he gives you, the abilities, the skills that he's given you, the things that he's, he's put in your hand like Moses, and he likes to lead us in a very supernatural, naturally kind of way. And bring joy to our hearts and glory to himself by what he's doing in us. And so, you know, it's interesting, though, Jesus, as we read here, Jesus' ministry had become very public. We've seen him... Uh, in John chapter 2, cleanse the temple, signs being done. We've seen Nicodemus come and visit Jesus. And Jesus is creating a stir in the nation already. People are seeing signs. His, his life and ministry were causing people to recognize the Lord is with Jesus. And John the Baptist's ministry is now overlapping. Their ministries are beginning to overlap more and more and more. And now both of them are actually down at the Jordan River. They're about separate spots. They think about five miles apart. They're both preaching. They're both baptizing. And we read what happens here now in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, He is baptizing and all are going to him. Now we've seen this, we've talked about this throughout John's gospel, the importance of ceremonial purification for the Jews. It was super important. Washing all the time, it was part of their religious practice. You know, the old saying, cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not in the Bible, but it is a biblical principle. You know, it was like washing all the time and it was 
to represent what was supposed to be in the heart. We've seen this about baptism. And so here this conversation begins about purification between John's disciples and, and this religious leader. And at some point the question comes up. It's like, well, should I be baptized by John or should I be baptized by Jesus? Which is better? I mean, here, here are these two individuals. They're both down here preaching. They're both down here at the River Jordan baptizing. And it's like, well, who am I to follow? Should I get baptized by John? Do I need to go over and get baptized by Jesus? Is Jesus' baptism, you, you know, like, here's the question that's going on. And these disciples of John the Baptist were obviously concerned about, you know, the man who was their rabbi, whom, whom they were following. They, they, were, they were concerned about defending the popularity and, and the prestige of, of their teacher. And it almost seems when you read this that it's like, hey man, like they're asking John, like give some counter argument on why people shouldn't be going to Jesus and they should stay here, John, and get baptized by you. You know, defend yourself, John. And it's interesting, you know, it's like you, you kind of see that often in like religious movements that often, in the church we get like this, often the disciples of certain teachers are more concerned about their teacher's glory than their teacher is. You know, in Calvary Chapel, it's like, oh, Chuck Smith, right? And sometimes people get more concerned about Chuck's name than Chuck was concerned. Chuck was concerned about the name of Jesus and preaching that. History's full of lots of examples where you see those excesses of disciples and churches saying, whoa, holding up forefather. So it's like, hey, John, did John, defend your name. Defend your name, John. And so what does John say? Verse 27. He says, a person, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy, therefore, the, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, and I must, but I must decrease. Like John says this, he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. It's good for us to remember that, church. I like that. John knew that anything he had or nothing he had came to him apart from God. Apart from God's supply, apart from God's provision, any abilities he had, any gifts he had, any ministry he had, he possessed it because God gave it to him. It was a gift from his heavenly father, and it's the same for you and I. Any area, you know, you look at your life, any area in which you excel, it's because God has sovereignly and graciously given you the desires, he's given you the skills, he's given you the abilities, he's brought provision into your life, and then he adds his grace and his blessing to that. It's not because of who we are. I mean, you know your heart. I know my heart. I mean, it's always in spite of us. You're always like, wow, God, you're so good to me. You're so gracious. You bless us. You pour out your blessing on me because I'm your child. Because we're your creation. Scripture tells us every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. And it's interesting, God desires to give good gifts to his children, doesn't he? He, he, wants, he wants to give to us. He, he said, he'd give the Holy Spirit. How much more will he give the Holy Spirit if we ask? He, he, he wants to give us, the scripture tells us all sorts of amazing things that God wants to give us. It says, he wants to give us beauty for ashes. Ashes. Cleaned out your wood stove lately? That is like a filthy, dirty job that I always leave until it's too late. I'm like, oh, this is so annoying. I hate having to do this. I just want to get the fire going and get my house warmed up, and I got to scoop ashes and shovel them out, and I'm always looking for something to put them into and get rid of these ashes, and it's a shocking thing that beauty can come from these ashes. The Lord says, I want to give beauty for ashes. His word says that he wants to give us joy for our mourning. That he, that he gives peace 
in darkness, when we're not sure what's going on. That, that he gives hope where there was no hope. He, he, he's a giver of gifts. And John recognized whatever he had, man, Lord, it's, it's, it's in spite of me. Whatever ministry I have, it, it, it's from the Lord. And, and he couldn't despise that or worse, fight against Jesus or defend himself against the, the ministry of this man, Jesus, whom people were now going to. Others were going to him and they were leaving John behind. And so verse 28 again, John says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bridegroom, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John says to his disciples, he said, have you forgotten what I preached? Don't, don't you remember I, was decla I declared, I was questioned with regards to this, and I clearly said, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. See, John understood his, his mission. And he said, now my joy is complete. You know, it's interesting, the first time we're introduced in any sense with regards to John in the scripture, it has to do with joy. Do you remember what happened in the womb of Elizabeth? He leapt. And what did he leap at? The presence of Jesus. That was John. You know, Mary comes from the town of Nazareth, this young mom pregnant, whole scene. The Lord leads her to go and visit Elizabeth, who's six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And John leapt for joy in his mother's womb when pregnant Mary entered the room. And that's our introduction to John in the scripture, his his joy at the presence of Jesus. And now here he is. You know, I, th I think about what we read about John here, and it's like he has already reached the pinnacle of his ministry, and he's begun the descent down the other side. It's like with regards to his ministry, his best days are in the rearview mirror. They're behind him. That's a hard place in life, I imagine. You know, when you clearly recognize, okay, I've been in ministry, I've been serving the Lord, and now there's a descent. It's like, wow, this is coming to an end. The, the best days are, are behind. And what do we read here ab about John as he's cresting the, the mountaintop of ministry? He still finds his joy at the sound of Jesus' voice. His joy is still sourced in the presence of Jesus. And in Jesus' growing influence, John says, I love it. It makes my joy complete to know that Jesus is being glorified. To see Jesus lifted up, that's joy for me. And to explain the reason for, for his, his ministry and the basis of his joy, John uses this cool picture of a wedding, this analogy of a wedding, the bride and a groom and Really the role, I called it the best man, the role of the friend, the friend of the groom. Been in a wedding party? You know, I, I got to serve in a couple buddies, couple buddies' wedding parties. They were my groomsmen. My brother was my best man. I was my brother's best man. It's like a privilege to be in that role. And John uses this picture. He illustrated this for his disciples. He refers to the the customs of weddings at that time. And the friend of the bridegroom was, was this. They were like the assistant that helped put everything together and organize. He's almost like a wedding planner. Looking after the details prior to the groom's arrival. And he's not, he's not participating in the marriage. He's just there and he is acting on behalf of the bridegroom, serving the bridegroom's interests. Hey, let's take care of this. Let's take care of that. Let's make sure the bride's ready. Let's, whatever it is. Making all the prearrangements for the ceremony. And his joy came, the, the friend of the bridegroom, that, that best man, his joy came when he heard the bridegroom was coming for his bride. And John says, that's my job. That's been my job. I, I'm only worried about the groom. I've baptized with water. He's going to baptize with the spirit. He's already declared that. So therefore... I have to become less and he has to become greater. This, this isn't just, you know, 
him being sensible. This is God's plan and God's desire. It's God's divine will. And John willingly, with joy, accepted that role. He's like, man, let Jesus be glorified. I'm nothing more than the best man. You think about that, it's like, it, it makes for a good, I don't know, romantic comedy. You know, my wife likes those kind of movies where the bride runs off with, you know, the best man or something like that. What's that movie, you know? It's like terrible. I mean, if you think about it, really, you know, my best friend's wedding, whatever it's called. Like, what a terrible thing for the best man to run off with the bride. John says, I'm not doing that. No chance. I'm here for the groom. I'm here to make sure the groom gets his bride. And I'm excited about this. His joy was complete. His joy was full to hear the voice of the bridegroom, to know just miles down the river, more people are going to Jesus. More people are being baptized by he than me. You know, it's interesting to think about our joy being fulfilled. Joy, your joy being fulfilled. When does that happen? For us as followers of Jesus, when is our joy fulfilled? You know, really, it's, it's, it's never when I get something from the Lord or my joy is not fulfilled when I do something for the Lord. You know what I found about joy? Is that joy, my joy is most fulfilled when I simply hear the voice of the Lord. That's like all I need. It's like, wow, I can go on that. I can go on that. You know, it makes me think of Elijah running on that little bit of bread for 40 days and 40 nights. It's like, Lord, let me hear your voice and I can go. That's true joy, to hear the voice of the Lord. And you know, we're, we, we live in this world that tells us your joy comes from other things. Your joy comes from your relationships. Your, your joy comes from your money and your bank. Your joy comes from... The nice set of wheels you drive. The joy comes from the place where you live or the house that you own. And people expect their joy to be fulfilled by all sorts of things. But John's a great example to us here. He says, my joy is complete when Jesus is glorified, when I'm hearing his voice. And church, I just encourage you, spend time with the Lord. Spend time in his presence. Spend time reading the word. Spend time listening to his voice. Your joy will be fulfilled. Think about John in the womb. Maybe you're a baby Christian, a new Christian. I'll tell you, when Jesus speaks, something leaps inside of you, like John left in his mother's womb. If you're... If you're you know, been walking with Jesus for a long time, and maybe the mountaintops even in behind you, look, you're... Your joy is realized when you just hear the voice of Jesus. You hear him speak. So John says this. He says, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's like seven words, and it's, it's just like a great, I don't know, could be your life verse right there. That's a good life verse, that one. To say, this is the vision of my life, that I decrease and Jesus increase. Seven words. Seven words and it like captures the heart of ministry and discipleship and following Jesus. And if you're the best man, the best woman, that's your job right there. That's your job. And, it, and, it, and it's interesting to me as I look at these last verses that close, close this chapter, verse 31 to 36. To me, this is how I looked at this this week as I was studying it. To me, this is the best man's speech at the wedding, okay? You ever had to do one of those? You ever had to do a speech at the wedding? To me, this is like John's speech as he honors his friend, the groom, prior to the wedding. Let's check it out. It's a great, it's kind of funny. You look at the end of this chapter and it feels like after this great meeting with Nicodemus, and we're gonna go into this really cool story that we know the woman at the Samaritan woman at the well and you're like, oh, okay, what's the dribble in between, you know? What's the purpose of it? Right here, the best man's speech. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven 
is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the best man's speech. And I think John is speaking to the bride. So he's speaking to us, okay? Think about that this way. He's speaking to the bride and he's saying to the bride, this is why the groom deserves your loyalty. This is who this man is and this is why you pledge your heart to him and this is why you pledge your life to him. This is why he's come for you and this is the man whom he is. And so, so John gives reasons. There are these reasons. There are reasons why I should decrease and Jesus should increase. It's a, nice, it's a great sermon at here, right? And the first thing we need to know about a groom is always this. You need to know where he comes from. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? So John tells us about Jesus' background. Or you might say his origin. I called it Jesus' origin, but I don't, I don't really totally like that because how do you describe his origin? He's eternal. And so in verse 31, Jesus, John speaks of Jesus' background or origin. He says this. He who comes from above is above all. He is from the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. John says this. Here's why I should decrease and Jesus should increase. Because I was born to this earth and I belong to this earth. My experience is limited to this earth. My ministry is limited to this earth. But the guy who's down the river five miles, Jesus, he came from heaven. His experience is not of this earth. His experience is heavenly. He knows what he's talking about. He's above all because he started above all. Jesus is above everyone. And so John says, don't think highly of me. Don't think highly of me is this minister or this baptizer or this spiritual reformer of our nation, he says this, think highly about Jesus. His origins are better than mine. I should decrease, he should increase. Then he begins to talk about the knowledge of Jesus. Look at verse 32. He, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So John tells us about the knowledge of Jesus. He says this about Jesus. He says, Jesus isn't just talking theoretically when he speaks. When Jesus speaks, he is speaking from the voice of experience. You know, when he talked to Nicodemus, and he said, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus said to him, do you not know you're a teacher of the law of Israel? And Jesus took him and talked, we talked about this last week, talked to him about the brass serpent lifted up in the desert. Look, when Moses lifted up that brass snake, Jesus was there, present. When Ezekiel saw the vision of the wind breathing life into those bones, who do you think was there present? Jesus. Jesus doesn't teach secondhand information. Jesus is a firsthand eyewitness account. When he speaks, he speaks about what he knows. He speaks from heaven, John says. He speaks of what he has seen and what he has heard. John says, man, my message is secondhand. Jesus' message is firsthand. That's why he deserves your loyalty. John says, I, I can only tell you what God has told me, but Jesus, he can speak firsthand with regards to the things that he has seen and heard. You know, if I preach about heaven, I'm talking about something that I've never seen. If you talk about heaven, you're talking about something that you've never seen. 
John says, I, I, you know, I'm putting words in his mouth here, but I, I don't know what heaven's like besides what I've heard and what I've read. I don't know what heaven's like. But Jesus, he's come down from above. He's seen God in his glory. He's seen heaven, which, which is incredible. And even more incredible is to think this, that John says, and yet no one believes him. Yet no one believes him. You're thinking about that. It's like, man, it's strange. It's strange. You know, think about this. John told, uh, Jesus told Nicodemus, how can I speak of heavenly things if you don't even understand earthly things? But I want to tell you about heavenly things. And, and it's hard for us as human beings to imagine this, like to put, our, put ourselves in Nicodemus's sandals and, and to think this, you know, how could it be that Jesus has seen heaven? He's a human being. He's a man. To tell me that he's seen God? You know, we don't, if somebody walked in here this morning and said, I've seen God, I've seen heaven. I'm sorry, but I like wouldn't trust that. Like right away, I'm like trained. I don't trust you. You're a nut bar. <laughs> right? It's very interesting. We don't want to trust that kind of knowledge. And so to trust that kind of knowledge, I'll tell you, here's the key to trust that kind of knowledge from Jesus. You have to recognize his origin. You have to recognize his background. That's why John said the first thing you need to know about Jesus is where he comes from. He comes from above. So you can trust his testimony. He knows what he's talking about. He is above all because he started above all. Jesus is above everyone. When he speaks of heaven, he knows what he's talking about. But it's interesting, you know, sometimes people maybe open the Bible and where they hear what Jesus declared about heaven and they don't believe him. He speaks of hell. People don't believe him. He speaks of God and they're like, what do you know about God? How can you call God your father? They might say, God, does God even exist? Is God real? Can he be known? You know, it's interesting. Even if you think about heaven, you know, Jesus speaks, speaks of heaven, let's say, and people like eat that stuff up. But then he like speaks of like eternal separation and hell and Sheol and these places. And it's like, well, no, that's not real. What he says there isn't real. People don't believe him. And what John is declaring to his disciples and to this religious leader who is present there is this, is that when Jesus speaks of such things, he is speaking of what he has seen and heard and knows. It's because of his origin and his knowledge. He's not talking out of the side of his mouth like me this morning. He knows what he's talking about. And it's interesting that it says, and John says, and no one believes him. You know, I, I mean, we believe the Lord, right? We, we put our faith in Jesus, but there's a part of us that's always resisting and pulling against, right? It's like, well, I believe this. I really wrestle with it. I declare that I believe it, but it's like, it's hard for me to believe certain things. Hard for you to believe certain things. John says, you need to think about this. When Jesus speaks, he speaks of what he has seen and heard. You know, I, I, I would just say, Look, let's stop and think about this for a second. If we apply this same principle to other commands that the Lord has given us in his word, let me give you a few examples. God says this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Or God says this, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Or God says this, Forgive as you have been forgiven. Or God says this, be holy for I am holy. And what do we say? We refuse his testimony. Well, I don't like that. Well, I don't believe that. I can't rejoice. Don't tell me to rejoice. I'm depressed. Give me a pill. Send me to the doctor. Whatever. 
you know, I'm like, I'm emotionally, I've got things going on. I can't rejoice. We say, give thanks. I can't give thanks. Like, I don't know. My family's crazy, man. They're dysfunctional. My marriage is this or this or that or whatever. I can't give thanks. They forgive. I can't, I can't forgive. You don't know what that person did to me. You don't know how that affected me. You don't know. I, I can't forgive. Or I can't, I can't be holy. Be holy. Be set apart. But I'm like, I don't know. I'm codependent on this relationship. Or I'm codependent on this substance or this or that. You know, it's interesting, like in our culture, we're always looking for a label to say why we can't. It's true. But I can't isn't the language of the kingdom, church. The language of the kingdom is this, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. All things. I can do all things. And, and maybe, you know, that's the problem when you think of that promise right there, that we're relying on ourselves always and relying on other things rather than tapping into what God has provided for us. We're his children. Leaning on Jesus and trusting in the promises. Look, John says this. He, he actually says this as he, in the text. He says, those who listen to Jesus prove that God is true. You know, for the one who does receive the testimony of Jesus and John, he'll say this, God is true, you can trust him. I, di I did, I followed this promise and it was true and God became more real in my life. Came through, you can, you can trust him. God is true, he sent his son to save us, it's a reality. See, the one who believes that God's word and commandments are, are really, see, God's word and his commandments are this, they're his empowerments to us. They're his enablements. They are the promises of God. Peter says that by these promises, we participate in the divine nature. We enter in to God and his kingdom through the word of God. See, the word of God is the authority that makes it possible for, our, for us to, to participate. Look, I can rejoice. I can rejoice in the Lord always. Why? Because God's word says so. I can give thanks in all circumstance. Why? Because God's word says that I'm supposed to, and I know he's working all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes, who love him. I can forgive because I've been forgiven. His word says so. I can be holy. I can be holy. Because God's word enables us and the Holy Spirit empowers us to be set apart unto God. You know, we live in this day of like psychological babble, man, gobbledygook, where it's like, where there's a label given to every human trouble, an excuse for everything. And look, church, we want to we want to not make excuses for sin with psychological babble and jargon and instead we take steps of faith towards the Lord. Scripture tells us to do so, to, to flee the lusts of your youth, to consider yourselves dead unto sin and alive unto God, to, 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 to declare your life is crucified, to be dead to sin and to live for Jesus. And when, when we step into those things, we experience God's faithfulness in the middle of it. John says, I have to decrease and he has to increase. And so John's saying this, I would say he's saying this, he's saying, go and listen to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Go to him. He's telling you firsthand what he has seen and heard. And if you take in his word, you'll declare this, God is true. God is true. If you believe what he says, you'll prove that God is true. Which also means this. If you don't listen to Jesus, if you make that decision, you're like, I'm not going to listen to Jesus, you're, you're actually like calling God a liar by your action. And I don't believe you. Your word's not true. You're, you're not sufficient. You're not enough. But those who believe the message of Jesus, they say this, God is true. And so John, John says about 
this groom. You got to know his origin. You got to know his knowledge. But he also says this. I, I want to tell you what inspires him for his bride. What inspires him for his bride? Verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus is, was, and is filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. Without measure. The Holy Spirit was there and present throughout all of Jesus' life. He was there at his conception. The Holy Spirit was there at his birth. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove at his baptism. The Holy Spirit was there in his temptation. The Holy Spirit was there with him, present in every miracle, in, a, in every sign, in every conversation, in every part of his ministry. Jesus said to those who questioned him, he said, if by the Spirit of God I drive out demons, then you know the kingdom of God is among you. The Holy Spirit was with him at his resurrection. The scripture tells us it was the spirit of holiness that raised him from the dead. The Holy Spirit. And, and John says the reason you should go to Jesus is that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit without limit. Now me on the other hand, you on the other hand, we limit the Holy Spirit, don't we? We... we we, we limit the work of the Spirit. We, we get afraid. Or we rebel or we're insensitive to his leading or our sin gets in the way. Our disobedience or our, our stubbornness, our fearfulness, and we grieve his work at different times and we resist the Spirit. Every one of us has limited the Holy Spirit. Jesus never, ever, ever limited the Holy Spirit. Never. Amazing to think about that. When he walked on the earth, he never put a limit on the work of the Holy Spirit and God gave him the Spirit without limits. You look at the great characters that we love out of the Old Testament. I think of Samson or Gideon. and The scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit came upon them. They accomplished a tax, task and then the Spirit left them. The Spirit was given to them with limitations. It was... For, for a time and, and for a purpose. But that was not the case with Jesus. He was completely filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says this, how much more will I give the Spirit? You ask me, how much, if, if you ask the Father, how much more will the Father give the Spirit to you? When we think about Jesus, every word that he spoke, every action that he took, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So here's John, he's hanging with his disciples, he's hanging with this guy who's questioning, he's like, look man, you guys can hang out with me, but you really should go down the river, like I'm just telling you, you should go down the river to Jesus and hang out with him. Because God gave him the spirit without limit. And then the last thing that John talks about is Jesus' power. His power. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. Here's another reason why you should go to Jesus. Because God loves him so much that he's given him power over everything. The father has placed everything into the hands of Jesus. Power. Man. We love power. The world loves power. John tells us here, the power of the universe is in the hands of Jesus because the father loves his son. Sometimes, you know, a father says to, a fa uh, to, to their child, you know, I love you. Because I love you, because you're my child, you're my son, I'm gonna, we're gonna like transition the family business into your hands. Because I love you, because you're my son, you're going to get uh, the family estate. And you're going to manage that. I, I love you, and you're my, you're my son, so maybe even I was thinking about this. I think it, this is actually one of the reasons why, I don't know, one of the things you see in churches is often like big ministries, there's, there can be nepotism where a father will hand a his big ministry that he's built over to his son. 
And it's because a father loves his son. So what he's built, he wants to give to his son. So I'm going to give you this ministry, son. I'm going to put it in your hands. You're to keep the legacy going and you're to, you're to build from here. Because I love you, I give it to you. Now, I built the business. I worked for the estate. God blessed me and I built this ministry and I want you to have it. I put it into your hands. And the father said that to Jesus. I made the universe. I want you to have it. I'm making the church. I want you to have it. I, I want all of the power of the universe to be yours, and so I put it into your hands. You're my son. Father didn't do that for John. He didn't give it to John. Didn't give it to you or I. He gave it to Jesus. And John says, that's why Jesus deserves your loyalty. Because everything's been given into his hands. And so here's Johnny. He's a faithful friend of the bridegroom. That's what I'd say. We read this. He's given this speech, this lesson, this teaching. He, I mean, we see this about John. He preached faithfully. He didn't mind it. If he ticked people off or offended people, whatever it was, he told the truth. He told the truth. And it's interesting as, as we consider this and you look at the last verse, when John begins to just button all of this up, and we've seen these musts in this text. You must be born again, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then you must decrease so that he can increase. John says there's consequences. There are consequences to all of these realities about Jesus. See, Jesus in the power that has been placed into his hands, it means this. It, it means that he's the one who decides who comes into his heaven and who is not welcome? Who, who receives eternal life and who receives eternal wrath? Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoa, John, that is clear right there. It's like there's no wiggle room there, is there? Again, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And John says this, I'm just a friend of the groom, man. And the, and the, the groom has come for his bride, and the bride must come to the groom. For whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life, and whoever doesn't, they're going to live eternally under God's wrath. It's just like, you read that verse, it doesn't get any clearer. You know, it's just, like I said, no wiggle room. It's like eternal life, eternal wrath. And it all depends on coming to Christ, on faith in Jesus. You know, it's interesting, because there seems to be this, you know, this prevalent thought in a lot of churches and amongst Christians that's like eternal wrath isn't real. Well, heaven's real and everyone's coming to that, but eternal wrath is not real. I just want to remind you, church, about whose background are we talking about? Whose knowledge are we talking about? Who's inspired by the Holy Spirit that we're talking about? Who has the power of the universe in his hands? And what does he declare? When he speaks about heaven and eternal life, he speaks the truth. When he speaks about hell, Sheol, and eternal wrath, he speaks the truth. We look at the words of Jesus. So why should we believe verse 36? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him because of Jesus' origin, because of Jesus' knowledge, because of his inspiration, because of his power. We believe what this says. I urge you, if you don't know Jesus... Come to Jesus. Surrender your life to him. He came for this very purpose to bring us into relationship so that we could be his children. So that he could call us the sons and daughters of God. He came while we were lost in our sin and separated from him from, from God. 
and he bore sin in his body. The scripture says he took our sin and the punishment of our sin upon himself and he bore it on that tree. And he died on that tree and they took him down. They buried him and he spent three days in the grave but after three days the spirit of holiness raised him from the dead. The power of life and death is in the hands of Jesus. It means we have to come to him. And as John said, man, that's the joy of my life, to hear his voice. And my heart is this, John says, that I would decrease and that Jesus would just increase all the more. You know, church, I, I would just tell you this. I would give you just a couple takeaways. I would say this. First of all, with regards to the will of God, go where the water is. Go where the water is. Be practical. You know, to me, I was just thinking about this too, uh, just even as I'm yapping, my mind's... Water's such a great picture of the word of God. And I would just tell you, I don't know, I, I don't necessarily know everybody here. Sometimes we've got guests here. If you're in a church that does not teach the word of God, get out of there. Go where there's water. Go where there's water. And ask the Lord to begin to just place his desires in your heart. And say, God, I just, I just ask you to do that. Put your desires in my heart. I want to follow you. I, I'll go wherever you, you say. I, I, second application. Lacking joy? Are you lacking joy? Look at joy comes from hearing the voice of Jesus. That's where joy comes from. He'll make you leap on the inside. Get in his presence. Get alone with him. Get your Bible. Get your journal. Go to the beach. Do whatever you do. Find a closet. Spend time with Jesus. He will restore your joy. He'll speak to you. Third thing, just so simple. Let us decrease so that he can increase. Amen? I can invite the worship team to come.